Hey everyone, back again. Today we're going to start Bell Hooks's Feminism is for Everybody. This will be a two-part thing. This episode will cover chapters 1 to 8. Next episode will cover chapters 9 to 19. But before jumping into it, hi, I'm David. If you're new here, welcome, welcome, welcome. If you found this as a podcast, you can also find it on YouTube, where I sometimes have videos. If you found this as a YouTube, you can also find it as a podcast. If you like that, you could listen. You don't have to worry about ads likely i think i hope uh yeah if you want to follow me anywhere other than here you can find me on instagram tiktok other places all such links in the in the description wherever you're listening to this from if you like what i'm doing here you can like share subscribe see videos at least every single week sometimes twice a week if you're listening to this on a podcast platform that lets you leave a review that'd be awesome be honest you think i did well leave a good review think I did poorly. <sighs> Leave a bad review. Fine. Be honest. Uh, yeah. If you want to help me out monetarily, be, uh, you could do that via Patreon or PayPal, but no pressure to do that. And on that note, let's jump into Bell Hooks's every, or Feminism is for Everybody. I wanted to say, every, <laughs> I was listening to Tears for Fears earlier, and everybody wants to rule the world, right? We all know that song. If you don't, you should listen to it. It's a good song. But... <laughs> It's going to say everybody wants to be a feminist, which is not true. Uh, but hopefully after we talk about this, at least for those of you listening, the title feminist won't scare you as much. If you happen to be scared by it, you might not be, you know, if you happen to be, then this text is a way by which to hopefully enter into uh, feminism. Now in the introduction, Hooks begins by recounting how many people are interested in her cultural analyses, the kinds that she performs in all of her texts, but they recoil, they pull away when she says that she's a feminist. And this is something that I've dealt with, something that I've experienced. That is, the term feminism holds a, a certain negative weight, a certain negative connotation. When you say that, people get a little bit uneasy. But she identifies, and this is something that really resonates with me, she identifies that when people are actually exposed to what feminists fight for, what they want, many people are actually on board. Many people who had previously been wary of the term or skeptical of it or were actually, they, they opposed it previously. And that is when people learn that feminism is about fighting for equal rights and justice and that it isn't about hating men people tend to be more, to open up to it, to be more attentive to it. And this flies in the face of many popular ideas and images about feminists as being man-hating, radical lesbians intent on essentially ending the male species or the male gender species, the male gender, the male sex entirely, and just having some kind of woman-only utopia this is not a tenet of feminism. It's one that is often promoted and perpetuated by large media outlets trying to get clicks or social media companies trying to really get clicks, trying to uh, boost the algorithm. But that is not what feminists stand for. So in the face of people's concerns about feminism, Hooks wanted, she always wanted one book that she could recommend as a starting point, as an introduction 
to introduce people to feminism and to feminism's project. That is the project to end sexism, sexist exploitation, and oppression. And this is her effort to make that book, to write that book that she's always wanted. And it isn't just something for women. That is, I think, one of the biggest misconceptions about feminism. It is also good for men and other people as well. Because many, like, many men just don't support women's, uh, they don't support women being oppressed and would actually prefer, prefer a more equitable, fair, and peaceful world. They also want to break away from traditional ideas or masculine tropes about boys and men having to be emotionally rigid, having to be aggressive, having to be competitive. Many men don't actually resonate with that at all and want opportunities to be more open, to engage with as many people as possible, to have as many friends as possible, to have long-lasting, enduring, and deep connections with as many people as possible, not to pull away into a kind of isolated competitiveness and aggressiveness, kind of macho man type thing, in favor of a more open and caring personality. Now, as much as feminism is not about hating men and actually works to improve men's lives, it also doesn't believe that all women are magically anti-oppressive. It is also very clear that women can be oppressors, that women can uh, contribute to sexism, to sexist exploitation. And for Hooks, this was, uh, she found this even in her own mother, who was, in her words, the strongest patriarchal voice in her life. Her father was, uh, wasn't great either, but she recognizes that her mother wasn't exactly uh, fighting for women's rights, at least in the way that Hooks eventually would. So feminists don't just focus on, uh, feminists don't just focus on gender-based oppression. They're also concerned with classism, racism, imperialism, and so many other things, because they all connect. Gender-based oppression does not just exist in isolation from the rest of society. So many other factors play a part, contribute to it, and it contributes to them. So if feminism has, over time, really begun to adopt what is called an intersectional analysis or viewpoint to look at multiple different kinds of oppressions and identify how they interact with one another and how they contribute to oppressing people in a lot of cases, oppressing women and other gender minorities. And that puts us here into chapter one, feminist politics, where we stand. So Hooks is clear. She's very clear that sexism and not men is the problem. Men are not evil by nature for Hooks. In fact, like, you know, if you observe like young boys, they're all, like very friendly. They're very caring and kind and gentle. And it seems like it has less to do with some kind of natural biological disposition towards aggression, competitiveness, violence, and more to do with the way that society shapes and molds young boys to become men who are violent and aggressive. And if you want to know more about this, I think a really great starting point to understand uh, masculinity or to take a critical look at it 
is a film that you can find it on like online uh, really easily. I think even on YouTube. It's called Tough Guys, where guys is spelled G-U-I-S-E. I really recommend it. Uh, it deals with some difficult themes like domestic violence and abuse, uh, some of which I, you know, I should say we will cover here as well. So be, you know, be ready for that um, because, you know, these are, these are clearly difficult topics. But the film is like a really great introduction to looking at the ways, the different ways that men and masculinity have been framed uh, throughout history and really throughout like even over the last 50 years in the West, in, in America, and in all the entertainment industry. It's a really good deep dive into this complicated phenomenon. So the starting point here is to acknowledge that it's not as though men are by nature aggressive, even though most violences in this world, be they uh, shootings, you know, any domestic violence, are primarily done by men. This, this really can't be ignored. It, it is like just a fact, and we all love facts, don't we? But this has nothing to do with men. Rather, it has to do with sexism and the way that sexism encourages men to act a certain way. Now, obviously, popular voices don't say this. Instead, they say that feminists are just anti-man or anti-male. And indeed, like we can't deny that for a long time, that is how feminism approached this issue. It was just about going after men, was seeing men as the issue. And while Hooks is very sympathetic to that view, given that it was in feminism's early days, she now knows, and including <laughs> nearly all other feminists know now, that it has nothing to do with men. It has to do with sexism and patriarchy that encourages men to act a certain way towards women, towards other minorities. Now, over time, feminists learn that both men and women are complicit in sexism. Women can contribute to these same things as well. They are not just magically outside of these systems. Now, this realization dovetailed with increasing knowledge about racism, classism, where both white men and white women oppressed others. It was thanks to black women, uh, specifically black women activists like Angela Davis, Audre Lorde, Bell Hooks, as we're reading here, that the connection between sexism and men began to be blurred. So these black feminists started to identify the ways that white women could be as sexist, specifically against black women and other uh, and other women of color as much as white men could be. And even within feminist circles, there are many feminists who are quite problematic and oppressive in their view, like what is called liberal feminism. Liberal feminism is a kind of feminism that sees economic success as a metric for liberation. So liberal feminists say, oh, if I become a CEO or if I gain enough money, I will no longer be oppressed. Of course, such a view ignores the fact that to actually attain that position means that you are exploiting someone else. To get rich means you are exploiting others. And others are going to be exploited, or who's going to be the most exploited? Likely people, uh, likely people of color, 
who are the most economically exploited, like in the United States, or in companies overseas, where many people are forced to work for barely livable wages. There's also feminists, of course, who hate trans women or trans people, and who really hold on to the idea that to be a woman means that you have certain body parts, or that you've lived a certain kind of life, all gatekeeping the experience of what it means to be a woman. So obviously feminism isn't like a magical antidote to the world's issues. It must be fought for, it must be negotiated, it must be directed. And this has been true for a long time, where the right to vote, at least when it first came up for women, it long ignored black, indigenous, Hispanic women's rights to vote. Also, we see that in second wave feminism, they fought hard to attain a spot in the workforce. So second wave feminists from about the 60s onwards, you know, the, the waves of feminism are a little bit hazy, but the first wave being from about the late 1800s to around the mid 20th century, the second wave being from about the mid 20th century to the late 20th century, third wave feminism from late 20th century in the 90s to like 2010s, late 10s, maybe now we're seeing a shift into a fourth wave, you know, these things are negotiated, they aren't set in stone, but second wave feminists were very concerned with the possibility of earning a position in the workforce. Now that might seem like a good thing on, you know, at first glance, but it ignores the extent to which that this was primarily a white woman's issue. That is, black and Hispanic women in the United States were always working in the workforce. It was a privilege to be able to just stay at home and have one person that is the man going out and earning money. Now, this isn't to say that women should just be happy staying at home, but the most loud voice or the loudest voice that represented feminism at the time was largely ignoring the fact that many women, women of color, were not experiencing that same thing. That is, they were out in the workforce. They were working hard. They had to supply for their families. They weren't just staying at home. Not to mention that many of these white women who sought work did so because they would hire cheap labor in the form of domestic servants or other, mostly other women of color, to take over the domestic duties that they were leaving behind which contributed to racism and classism. And that puts us here into chapter two, consciousness raising, a constant change of heart. So no one is born a feminist. It's a little bit of a contentious claim. Like I like to think that children are closer to being feminists than many adults, even many adults who uh, claim to be feminists. That is because children, like you ever see children interact like, it's as though gender doesn't even exist to them. You know, boys interact with girls and others, like, seamlessly, right? They're just playing on the playground. They don't see differences. And so in that way, you know, I kind of... But anyways, I get her point. That is, we are not... No one is born a feminist. They need to become feminists. So feminist consciousness raising emphasized the importance of learning about patriarchy as a system of domination, how it became institutionalized, and how it is perpetuated and maintained. Often this consciousness raising happened when women would meet without men around 
They would meet at their each other's homes. They would meet on walks. They would meet in parks. And they would talk about their lives. And many of them would begin to acknowledge that actually our lives aren't that great. And the men in our lives do not treat us very well. And these were the first kind of classrooms to learn about feminism, to learn about women's experiences, to learn about sexism. So these discussions transformed eventually into organized groups intent on discussing, debating, understanding sexism. So it wasn't really active in changing things at first. It wasn't like, how do we, co how do we put this into like a coalitional movement? Women's studies departments would eventually take up this, uh, take up this role, and they would offer ways to better understand in an institutionally reputable way in the university and college about sexism. Would teach people about the nature of sexism and why you know women are people and why women should be listened to and why women's knowledges are as valuable as men's. Now, women's studies departments, at when they were first conceived, were largely underfunded. Uh, women working in them were overworked. And there was another issue where though many women didn't have PhDs who were teaching in these departments, they would have a master's degree or a bachelor's degree. They wouldn't have the, you know, the highest tier of university accolades. They would just have these other degrees. And this would be used as justification to overwork them and would eventually push them out because they would be overworked, they'd be underpaid, and they wouldn't be able to keep doing that kind of work. And you might guess, well, who were the women that were actually going to be able to go and get PhDs? Who were the women who could have support from like um, a family, you know, from having generational wealth, from having po uh, a property, from having perhaps a, a partner that could help uh, provide for them, it was white women. And so these departments would largely be filled with white women at the highest levels who would have the easiest jobs compared to other people, specifically women of color. And historically, these departments, including all departments in American, Canadian, North American, and European universities, have been overwhelmingly white, despite the fact that they are not, like, it is not proportional to the actual population of the United States. Clearly, there is something going on, or to any other place. Clearly, there's something going on where there, there are barriers for non-white people to actually access these positions. Now, one of the other consequences to this is that these women who were occupying these academic positions grew more and more detached from the actual experiences and the daily lives of everyday women women who were not white, women of color, working class women, which could include white women as well, of course. And they started to develop more inaccessible language in understanding what feminism is. They would use very complicated prose in order to stand out in, a, in an academic setting. But none of this or very little of this would actually be applicable to everyday working class women who didn't have the ability to understand like the intricacies of Marxist analysis or postmodern feminism or any any fancy highfalutin terms like that they needed to then just work their jobs and do their you know do things in their lives so hooks is very critical of academic feminists for developing and adopting 
inaccessible language to understand the plight of everyday women, which created a rift, a separation between people actually thinking about feminism and being feminists in academic settings and everyday women, people actually in the world. So consciousness raising groups, you remember at first they were like women going, you know, meeting with each other at their homes or at a park or any other, any other place at a bar or whatever. This eventually gave way, of course, to um, university and college departments. So consciousness raising groups for hooks are a better tool because they are accessible. They're about women of all uh, walks of life coming together and discussing their lives, discussing their experiences without it having to be filtered through academic rigor or, the, or its ivory tower of inaccessible language. The same, she says, could happen with men's groups where men come together and talk about like their role in all of this, how feminism could actually benefit them, why it would be good for them to actually develop the ability to open, openly talk with other men and women, to be emotionally open and available for others. And such groups, especially if men and women came together, would help clarify that feminism is not about hating men, it's about hating sexism. And that puts us here into chapter three. Sisterhood is still powerful. So starting out at a women's college, Hooks developed a kind of a rosy image of gender equality in higher education. When she joined Stanford, she quickly learned, however, that there was no such equality. Men dominated the classrooms and the syllabi. If any of you listening are in university or college or have taken courses, you could look back on your syllabi. It's a good test to see the status of sexism and racism in schools by looking at our syllabi and seeing how many women you read on your syllabi. How many people of color do you read? I think it's a really important exercise and one that professors, you know, it's, it's the work that professors need to do to expand the scope of their syllabi so so that they're the you know their syllabus so that they aren't just teaching the same thing over and over and over again so we know that women can be sexist obviously hooks also draws our attention though to the ways that this manifests as competition between women to earn men's attention and approval where this will split women's organizational abilities and coalition building Obviously, we know that men fight for women's attention too. Obviously, like clearly that happens. Uh, but their fragmentation, that is when men are separated because they're fighting for a woman's attention, won't affect them really in the world as a group. Because most institutions, cultural artifacts, entertainment, knowledges, reflect their interests. So if men become separated because they are fighting for women's attention, the world will keep benefiting them on average. They'll still keep making more at work. They'll still have more free time. They'll still not take on as many domestic duties as women do and so on. So sisterhood is then radical so long as it isn't sexist or racist or classist. That is what gets in the way of sisterhood sometimes is like this kind of competition where women compete for men's attention and men's approval which Hooks is like, it would be so much better if women worked together, cooperated, and identified that sexism makes them be like this. 
they don't necessarily want to be in themselves. For all I know, maybe someone does. You know, if they do, then by all means. Uh, but it's about recognizing the ways in which sexism encourages women to act this way instead of women actually wanting to act that way. And how fighting for men's attention gets in the way of sisterhood, of coalition building, and opposing sexism. So that brings us to chapter four, feminist education for critical consciousness. So by looking at college or university course, like we know, as I said earlier, you can learn a lot from a syllabus. How many women are being read in a course, how many people of color, etc. But imagine a course was to teach only uh, black people, for example, and it wasn't a course about like black studies, uh, even if it was, I mean, it's still a good test. Or better yet, let's think about film. If you think of a film or TV show, if it has an entirely white cast, no one bats an eye. You know, it's not like no one thinks there's like an agenda or it's slanted. It will just be perceived by the general public as neutral, right? If you have a movie or TV show comprised entirely of black actors and actresses, then this will often be branded for and advertised to black audiences. And many people will be like, oh, it's, you know, meant for that community. And this is a very good test to understand whose perspectives, whose representations are perceived as being neutral and objective and the norm versus those who are seen as being or whose inclusion is seen as being like slanted or representing only a certain group instead of the entire social body. Now, in the face of this, feminist education is not interested in silencing men. Like, th that has nothing to do with this. In fact, they, they would want to amplify men who are, who, are, who are feminists, who are talking about these things, who are expanding knowledge, and even to teach, like, the Hegels of the world and the Marxes of the world. Like, obviously, everyone knows these people had significant, contrib contributed greatly to understanding our world. The point is not to silence these men. The point is to just give equal weight to women and to women's contributions to history and knowledge. So any kind of educational teaching that is, that is feminist-informed should be interested in being accessible and collaborative. It should work with all women of all walks of life, especially younger women, to help teach them about the world as they're entering the world, so as to be as inclusive and to be as to resonate with people as much as possible. And this can extend well beyond education too. Hooks is a big advocate for feminist entertainment. Like the example she gives is like a feminist TV channel or radio channel. And there are many great examples of this, like shows being produced that are definitely informed by feminism that represent women and women's experiences in the world. And these are often a great accessible and digestible way to expose people to these ideas and really why it is important to engage with them. And that puts us here into chapter five, our bodies, ourselves, reproductive rights. Now the sexual liberation movement of the 60s and 70s and the fight for abortion access were obviously great things, like obviously overall great things but they primarily reflected white women's interests and experiences. So for example, discussions about abortion 
often covered over discussions about reproductive rights, which would have included things like uh, prenatal care, preventative health, uh, health care, and other relevant resources for all women, specifically as well marginalized women. It also ignored legacies of forced abortions, sterilization, and hysterectomies used against Black, Indigenous, disabled, and Hispanic women all throughout history. So while second wave feminism in the 60s and 70s, or second wave feminists, were very interested in obtaining the right to have abortions, which yes, good, absolutely, bodily autonomy is not just a women's issue, it's an everybody issue. Like this is, this is the primary thing that we have in our lives is our body. No one should be able to tell us what we can do with it. But these popular discussions, the ones that gained the most traction because they reflected the interests of the most privileged of an oppressed group, that is white women among all women, it gained the most attention. And unfortunately, that got in the way of actually engaging with these other histories, something that Angela Davis also writes about quite a bit, uh, specifically forced sterilizations and forced abortions of uh, black mothers and their, and their children. So when the pill first became widely available, some women avoided it out of fear that it would be a sign. It would tell people that they were uh, sexually open and active and that uh, pregnancy wouldn't be a risk. And for many women, this was a scary thing. So the pill is often, you know, celebrated as something that was great for women's liberation, and it was, like, no denying that. But that narrative covered over the other risks involved here. That is the way that women would be perceived if they actually uh, went on to birth control. Now, today, in the case of abortion, it is, <laughs> it's not protected by the U.S. I mean, just look at what happened to Roe v. Wade. Uh, and so it is easier for privileged women to actually access them. To take away the right to have abortion now disproportionately affects women of color who are historically underprivileged, have fewer resources to just go to another state where abortions might be legal to get an expensive procedure, like of course, this has to be considered here, where uh, the way that abortion is framed is not just like, I think it's an everybody issue, but it's something that specifically affects uh, women of color and other and poor women and other women who do not have access to the same kind of resources, where white women who can easily go anywhere if they are rich, you know, if they have wealth, can easily do that kind of stuff. It doesn't mean as much to them, but for other women, it is significant. And that should be held as like a primary concern among all women and all people. So as feminists, we must fight for reproductive rights and bodily autonomy. Like it is, as a, as a human, we have to, that must be fought for. And that pushes, pushes us into chapter six, beauty within and without. Now, one of sexism's pernicious components is making women feel ashamed of their bodies or only to believe that their worth comes from their being sexualized by men. Now, related to this was women's efforts not to have to wear dresses and skirts to work. Like, if you watch any old shows, like women who would largely only occupy secretarial roles would be expected to wear certain things. This is definitely a discussion that goes on now. 
And we see it happen now where in like restaurants, women have to wear certain kinds of clothes, like are forced to wear skirts or certain kinds of tops, which is just straight up discrimination. But it is a very big issue in the way that women are expected to wear certain kinds of clothes to appeal to men's interests instead of them wearing what's the most comfortable for them, what they actually want to wear. Not to say like if really women should be able to wear whatever the hell they want, that's really the that's really the end of the discussion. But Hooks is drawing our discussion our discussion, drawing our attention to the ways in which women feel a certain compulsion to dress a certain way to appease men. Now connected to this was women's efforts to reclaim their image in popular media and magazines. If you know the really important text, uh, Laura Mulvey's The Male Gaze, she identifies the ways that women are consistently framed as being objects of desire in film and television. They're just depicted as existing for men's attention, depicted to just appease men. And if you watch most (laughs) film and television, women are just like men's sidekicks. Women exist in the film to ask men questions, to be like, oh, you can do it. And the man's like, yeah. I mean, that's often the dynamic here. Now, this is also true, uh, or that is, this extends to uh, confronting men's imposed expectation on women's bodies, that is, their, beyond their clothing, that is, their size, their shape, what parts of their body are shaved, how much they're shaved, like, all of these expectations. And this is also true of aging women who feel pressure to put off aging as much as possible in ways that men do not. Men are allowed to age, whereas women are not. That is, they will lose opportunities that men gain as they age, which is just straight-up sexism. Now, the point is not to do away with beauty or fashion for women, but it is about women reclaiming this for themselves, not for men's interests. And that pushes us here into Chapter 7, Feminist Class Struggle. Now, for much of feminism's history, it has been concerned with the issue of class, Feminists in the 60s and 70s in second wave feminism, they were very concerned about their being forced to stay at home instead of going out and getting jobs. Now, Hooks specifies that this was a concern for a minority of women. Like I said before, this was primarily white women's concerns. Other women of color were always working. You know, they couldn't not be, Hooks herself included, coming from her own middle class background. So class analysis was really useful to understand the connection between classism and racism, where this glaring fact that white women were concerned about being able to go to work while black and other women of color were already at work revealed that there was this this split or this rift between um, white women and women of color. It also helped to illuminate the different struggles that women experience. Now, today, I mentioned, you know, I mentioned liberal feminism, also called power feminism. It contributes to ignoring the dimension of class, where it is concerned with equality in terms of women's ascension, their entering into corporate positions and affluence. It also ignores that when women attain career success, they're still expected to complete most, if not all, domestic tasks, where if women just, you know, enter the workforce, 
This doesn't mean that they aren't still going to have to go home and take on most of the domestic duties if they're in a heterosexual relationship with a man. Now, this has a few different names. In some cases, it's called the second shift, where women go to work, work eight, nine, ten hour days, then have to go home and work their second shift, taking care of all the domestic duties, something that men are not expected to take on. This is also called unpaid labor or invisible labor that women take on that they do not get any compensation for. And here we enter our last chapter of the day, chapter 8, Global Feminism. So feminism has been historically monopolized by middle-class Western white women. And Hooks says that this is ironic because there have been men and women for a 100,000 years, and women have likely been opposing men the whole time, yet feminism and the fight against sexism has been monopolized by white women where, you know, people for most of that history have not been uh, white Western feminists. But in any case, this is ironic for that reason. So white Western feminists have this stubborn tendency to always view women of color as the most oppressed women. And this is often racist and or Islamophobic, where in the case of like white women, white Western feminists, they view uh, Muslim women who wear like a job as being oppressed, or a niqab as being oppressed, and therefore in need of saving. Gayatri Spivak has a really wonderful quote where she says that, it kind of related to this discussion, that often brown women are framed as needing to be saved from brown men. And what this does is it disavows, it erases it sidesteps the ways that sexism works in our world. It's a way to distract in our world. I'm, you know, I'm talking like a white guy from Canada uh, living in the United, living in California. Um, it distracts from the sexism in our world by saying, oh, people are sexist over there. So therefore, we're doing everything right when, of course, that is not true. And it is, it of course, totally ignores the different ways that people actually experience their lives and uh, gender interactions in different parts of the world. So when white feminists point the finger at other cultures as being sexist, they repeat legacies of racist colonialism. And they point, uh, and the point here is to listen to these women and not to speak for them. This is a point, you know, so many people have said this, Sarah Ahmed, Sanara Thabani, uh, <laughs> really the list, Gayatri Spivak, the list goes on and on that if feminists are to engage with women all across the globe in any context, the point is to listen to these women, what they're actually fighting for, what they want, instead of imposing an idea about what feminism should look like for them. And yeah, that'll put us into chapter nine. Next week, we'll cover the rest of the text. Uh, if you like what I did, like, share, subscribe. Uh, if there's anything I got wrong, anything I excluded, I'd love to hear about it. I'm not claiming to do this text any justice. You really got to read it. It's really a, a, an amazing introduction to studying feminism, to understanding it. She provides so many examples. I can only cover so many of them. Otherwise, this would run for like 14 hours. Uh, but yeah, if there's anything you think, oh, David, you really should have mentioned this thing. You know, you can always comment it. If you're on YouTube, I can pin it. Everyone can see. It'll be amazing. And yeah. On that note, take care.